everybody. Welcome to Arendale Bible Chapel. So glad you joined us today for our service. And uh, if you're a part of our church family, of course, uh, we, we still, still miss you. Look forward to the day when we can be back together again. If you don't normally uh, join us on Sundays, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us today. We're uh, honored to have you uh, as part of uh, what's happening here today in our online service. Well, today we are uh, continuing our teaching series in the subject of the afterlife. And uh, really, this series is all about looking ahead to what happens after we die. Now, today I want to talk about something that every Christian mother wants their children to be prepared for. The year was 1789. Benjamin Franklin, the sixth president of the United States, had just participated in signing into law the United States Constitution. With that great accomplishment in his rearview mirror, he sat down and, and penned a letter to a friend in which he made a statement that has become, well, about as famous as he is. This is what he wrote. He said, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But, and here's the statement, but in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Have you ever heard that, that saying where somebody says, you know, the only thing that you can really count on are death and taxes? Well, to be sure, it's a, a, a tongue-in-cheek statement from a man who spent a lot of years in government. But the point is well made that very few things in this world are certain. In fact, many things, many, many things are uncertain. And I'm, the days that we live in right now are testimony to that. But with all due respect to the late president, I'd submit to you that there is something even more certain than death and taxes. To be sure, there's some ways that, that people in, in Canada and other countries can be exempt from paying taxes. And uh, while death is almost a certainty, the Bible does teach us, as we've seen in our series, that believers who are alive when the Lord returns will dodge death. So... Uh, I mean, death and taxes are highly, highly likely. But today I want to tell you something that the Bible says is even more sure, even more certain than death and taxes. It's something that no one will evade. It's no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've accomplished, you have an appointment coming that you will not avoid. You have a meeting that you will not miss. You will stand before the Lord who will be your judge. That is a certainty. The Bible tells us that surer than death and surer than taxes is judgment day. Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for people to die, and after this, judgment. Acts 10 and 42 says, Jesus is appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now, that's everybody, isn't it? I mean, that's the only people there are is those who are alive and those who, are, who have died. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's what we're talking about today is this appointment that you won't avoid, this meeting that you won't miss, this coming day that we often refer to as judgment day, this time that the Bible tells us when Jesus will be the judge of everyone, even you and even me. So what is Judgment Day? What does this involve? And, and how does it all actually relate to me? 
Well, to that we turn our attention. And if you would open up your Bible to uh, Acts chapter 17, we're going to read a passage in which Paul the Apostle tells us some important things that we need to know about Judgment Day. Again, it's Acts chapter 17, and our our focus is going to be on verses 22 to 34. It's our text today, and just to set it up for you, Paul the Apostle is in Athens, Greece, that great city that was a philosophical and intellectual center of the ancient world, a hub for literature, education, religion. It had breathtaking architecture. It was a place of ideas as well. Some of the great philosophical minds of history called Athens home. Names such as Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno, to name a few, uh, were, were from Athens or are called Athens home. But for all of its intellect, for all of its skill, for all of its free exchange of ideas, Paul, when he toured Athens, was shocked and dismayed about what he found there. Acts 17 verse 16 says that he discovered the city was full of idols. And so as a result of that, he took to reasoning with people, anyone and everyone. In the synagogue, he reasoned with the Jews. In the marketplace, he reasoned with the Greeks. And he declared to them that which had eluded the people of, of Athens, and that is the truth about God. Now, among those that Paul talked with were influential people who uh, insisted that Paul come and present his ideas namely the gospel, to the ruling council of Athens called the Areopagus. Now, this was the who's who of Athens. Uh, 30 men of power uh, who made up this council, and surely there were other prominent men and women present when Paul made his presentation. So there Paul is brought to this, the who's who, the, the power brokers of Athens, who had jurisdiction over civil and religious matters in the city, and there Paul comes into this, this meeting in this front of this austere gathering. And you can just imagine the meeting comes to order. And uh, Paul takes his place in front of this group and perhaps motions with his hand. And there's a hush over the crowd. And then he begins with this statement. Notice what he says in verse 22. He begins by saying, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now make a note of this. There are some things that we need to know. There's some things, there's some truths that we need to know. Write that down. There are some truths that we need to know. Paul here is uh, making a statement. His introduction is, you're very religious people. I can see that. But there's some very important realities that have eluded you. He calls them very religious. Perhaps you know people who are very religious. Perhaps you consider yourself to be quite religious. Here in Canada, there's lots of people who would identify as spiritual people, as those who are mindful, as people who are religious. I've got friends who would say that. You probably do too. People who have lots of beliefs maybe in higher powers or a set of beliefs that are formative in terms of how they live their lives. Many have a sense that there's 
more to this life than living and dying. And I suggest that's a very good thing. But what Paul shows us here is that as admirable as it, as it can be to hold sincerely believe beliefs in your heart, um, there are some realities, there are some certainties, there are some facts with which we all must be acquainted he said to the Athenians, the Athenians, he said, I've seen your altar with this inscription to the unknown, unknown God. Apparently, you know, as they worshiped many pagan gods, they seemed to be fearful that perhaps they may have overlooked one and thereby offending them. And so perhaps to cover their bases, they have this altar to an unknown God. Well, Paul sees this as an evangelistic opening and he stands before them and says, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That's what he says in verse 23. In other words, you have overlooked someone. Now let me tell you about him. Now notice he does not uh, leave them with merely good intentions. You know, if it were good enough just to have sincerely held personal beliefs, then Paul would have tipped his cap to them and say, it's nice to see that you're religious people. But that was not his response, was it? See, it's not sufficient just to have a sense that there is a God. The reality is, is that it's, it's not sufficient to just be sincere. You know, early on in my marriage, I discovered something that while I had believed that when my wife shared with me a problem, that what she wanted was for me to solve it, that was a sincerely held belief that I had, but what I discovered is I was sincerely wrong. And I still remember that day in, in which she, she said to me, she said, you know what? Just because I'm sharing with you a problem does not mean I want you to try to fix it. <laughs> that, that was revelatory to me. I honestly thought, why else would you be telling me your problems? You must be coming to me for advice. Well, it turns out she doesn't need my advice. She just wants somebody to, to vent to and somebody to hear her out. We can be sincere and sincerely wrong sometimes, can't we? Well, Paul says there's some things that you need to know, regardless of how sincere you are about what it is that you believe, there are some truths, there are some realities that you need to know. You say, well, well what are those truths? What are those realities? Well, that's, that's what Paul gets into uh, next. That's what he addresses in, this, in, in really the rest of his speech. In verses 24 to 28, he tells us some truths about God. Okay, so verses 24 to 28, there's some truths about God. Then in verses 29 and 30, he tells us some truths about ourselves, some truths about people. And then in verse 31, he tells us the truth about the future. Okay, so there's the truths about God, verses 24 to 28, the truths about ourselves, verses 29 and 30, and then verse 31, truths, a, a truth about the future. So first of all, what's the truth about God? Well, let's have a look at verses 24 and, and 28 and see what he says here about God. Notice Paul says, after his introduction, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He says in verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, since he, him, uh, sorry, uh, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having, de having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwellings, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. For he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, and now he quotes a contemporary, that folks, a, a poetry that people would have known, for we are indeed his offspring. So he takes that poem, uh, a quote from a well-known uh, poem that was contemporary in those days, and, and said, you know, for, for we are, or that was well-known in those days, which says, for we are indeed his offspring. He says, that's who we are in relation to God. So what does Paul tell us here? Well, there's some truths here that he tells us about God. I'd suggest that when you boil it down, he declares uh, three truths here about God that you and I need to know on this side of Judgment Day. Three truths about God that we need to know on this side of Judgment Day. First of all, God is great. God is great. Did you notice in verse 24 where Paul speaks about the fact that God made the world and everything in it? Now think about that. How great is this God? He made the world, this, this vast, expansive planet. He made the world and all that is in it. So the planet itself and, and all of the life that springs forth from the ground, every creature that swims in the seas and in the oceans and in the lakes, every creature that crawls, every, uh, every animal that trots, every being that walks, whether it's the, the, the gorgeous Grand Canyon, whether it's the fur on the tiniest insect, whether it's the heavens above and, and all their constellations, the sun and the moon, or that right down to the smallest atom, God created all that there is. He created the skin that covers your body. He created the 100,000 kilometers of blood vessels that are in you right now. That's right. If you were to lay out and stretch out all the blood vessels in your body, they are long enough to circle the globe twice. Who made all this? It's God who made all this. He's a great God. God is great. Not only that, Paul says that not only did he make everything, but he is Lord of heaven and earth. You see that in, at the end of verse 24? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. So he is overall, that is, he is, theologians would say he is transcendent. Now, members of his audience, many of those listening to him that day, would have had a pantheistic worldview. You probably have co-workers or friends who have a pantheistic worldview. You say, what is that? It's this idea that whatever God there is, uh, that God exists in all of creation. That, God, that creation, everything that there is, all material things emanate from that being. Um, it's a worldview that doesn't separate God from creation, but that, that all that is is of God and is God. Well, the Christian worldview is vastly different from that. We believe indeed that God made all things, but he is separate from all these over all things. Paul says he is Lord over, transcendent over everything, uh, everything that there is. Uh, he is separate from, he designed it, he created it. It declares his glory. It says something about him. So when you feel the warmth of the sun or you see the vastness of the ocean, 
or perhaps you've had the privilege of witnessing the wonder of childbirth. All these things testify to the glory and the majesty and the greatness of God. Our God is great. He has the power to create all things, the creativity and vision to imagine it all. He's got the intelligence to design it all. Paul makes a declaration about God here that you and I are wise to notice this side of Judgment Day. God is great. But not only is he, is he great, Paul tells us also, verse 25, that God is good. God is good. Verse 25, he says he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Notice, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He declares here the goodness of God. He gives to us life. You and I exist because of him. He gives us breath. The next breath you take right now comes from him. He sustains you. He made you. He sustains you. He gives to us life and breath and everything. In other words, everything that we have to enjoy comes from him. Acts 14, 17 says about God that he did good by giving us rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying our hearts with food and gladness. Have you had food this week? Have you had any nth of gladness? Have you had laughter this week? Have you uh, uh, maybe talked to a loved one on FaceTime? Have you had fond memories that you have reviewed in your mind's eye? All of the good things that we enjoy come from Him. Even the shower that maybe you had this morning, the, the, the warm socks on your feet, the pet that maybe you enjoy. All the, every good and perfect gift, James 1.17, comes from the Father of lights, comes from Him. God is good. He is good to us. What of these things do we deserve? Perhaps you feel like you're deserving of it, but... Does the God of heaven really actually owe you anything? Think about that. And then Paul says in verse 27, not only has he been good to us, he also is near to us. Think about the goodness of a God who is over and above all, but also is near to us. He's imminent. He's close. He says in verse 27, at the end of verse 27, he is actually not far from each one of us. Remember the song? It was Bette Midler a long time ago. She's, she's saying that God is watching us from a distance. Well, that song's half right. He is watching us, but he's not at a distance. He's near to us. In fact, I would suggest to you, for some of you, he's nearer than you think. By grace, he's perhaps today at your door, knocking, that you would welcome him in. Wonder of wonders. He is a great and awesome God, but he is also good. God is great. God is good. Third thing Paul tells us, another third truth about God. God is holy. God is holy. Now, usually when we talk about holiness, we think of sinlessness. And that is true of God. God is holy. But there's another part of holiness. Holiness in its true meaning not only speaks of sinlessness, but speaks of a kind of otherness, a separateness, a uniqueness. God is unique. There is no one like him in all the universe. There's no one like him in majesty, in glory, in power, in perfection. 
When we speak about God being holy, we're saying that he is unique. He is God. And these are things we need to understand about him this side of Judgment Day. This is what Paul told his audience that day. He told them about God. He says, you have this, that you, you worship a God that you do not know. Well, they did not worship him really because they weren't honoring him as he ought to be honored. You see, we must worship God in the knowledge of him. If I say to my dear wife, oh, and by the way, today is our anniversary. 10th of May is our anniversary. We've been married for 17 years. I love this woman with all my heart. So happy anniversary, Leanne, and happy Mother's Day. But as we're talking about this, if, imagine, imagine I go home and, and I look at her and I say, you know, honey, every time I look into your big, beautiful blue eyes and run my fingers through your gorgeous, flowing blonde hair, I just feel a thrill of joy and privilege of being called your spouse. Imagine if I said that to her. Do you know what my wife would do? She would get very angry. You say, why, why would she get angry? What would be a problem? Well, the problem is, is that she does not have blue eyes. She has brown eyes. And she does not have blonde hair. She has brown hair. You see, we, must un- we do not honor someone when we, don't honor, when, we, um, when we pay tribute to them about things that aren't true of them. Just as my wife would be dishonored at me trying to... Uh, Uh, bless her with things that are not true of her. She would be angry at that. So also God is. Imagine how he feels when people just just sort of make up all kinds of things and attribute to God things that are not true of him. Or or in in the Athenians case, uh, prize something, uh, uh, worship or pay homage to something that's not actually God. They had ideas about maybe an unknown God, but Paul says, you need to know some truths about him. And there's many truths that the Bible tells us, but at least these are vital for us to understand. God is great. God is good. And God is holy. And and his holiness has everything to do with judgment day. Because when he calls us to account, it's out of his own perfections that he does so. So the question we've got to ask ourselves is, well, okay, so God is great. God is good. God is holy. How then have I treated him? Well, that leads us to the next part of the message and the next area of truth that Paul covers. He starts by talking about truths that we need to know about God. And then he begins to tell us truths that we need to know about ourselves, truths about people. Verse 29 and 30, notice what he says. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Again, right? Just like you wouldn't, you wouldn't praise your spouse by saying, I love your blonde hair when they have brown hair. So also we don't honor God by, uh, by believing things that aren't true about him. We, 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 are, we stand in serious peril when we dishonor the great and holy God. So Paul says, being God's offspring, we, not ought, we ought to not think that of the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, the times of ignorance, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Two things that Paul tells us here about ourselves. First of all, he tells us that we have not treated God like God. 
We have not treated God like God. The Athenians had not honored God rightly. And that's what he's trying to tell them in verse 29. And you know what the Bible tells us? Whether you're Athenian or Canadian, you haven't honored God either. You say, how do you, how do you say that? Well, the first great commandment is this. You shall have no other God before me. Jesus confirmed that. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, it's this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, God is God and God must be first. The reality is, is that the Bible teaches us that we are not lovers of God so much as we're lovers of self. We've not honored God the way that he ought to be honored. The Bible says that we can clearly perceive his greatness in the things that have been made. But people, men and women, far and wide, have suppressed the truth that is apparent to us in creation. And we put our own passions ahead of a passion for him. We've put our own desires ahead of his desires. We have, Paul says in Romans 3, we have fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we've not treated God like God. And the Bible calls that sin. Sin is at its essence our dishonoring of a great, good, holy God. And the sad truth about ourselves is that we have not honored God like God. The second truth that Paul tells us about ourselves is that we are commanded to do something. What is it we're commanded to do? Did you notice in verse 30? It says, it says again, the times of ignorance God overlooked. In other words, God has been patient. He's been dishonored again and again and again, but he's been so patient. He's overlooked it. He's, he's been patient with us. But now what does he call us to do? But now he commands all people everywhere to what? To repent. To repent is when you turn away from going one way to going the other way. It's, it's heartfelt sorrow for sin that leads to change. This is the second truth that Paul tells us about ourselves. The first is that we've not treated God like God. The second is that we are commanded to repent. God has not dealt with us like he should or could. He's been patient. He's been patient because he's loving. And he demonstrated his love, not only in his patience, but also in sending Christ to, to die for us. That's what the Bible tells us. Romans, uh, Roman, the book of Romans says that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ Jesus came to the world and, and paid the penalty for our sin. And he himself has given us rel the, the, really the same command that Paul is relaying to us too. When he declared, repent and believe the gospel. When I repent, I turn away from the way that I'm going to the way that I ought to go. When I repent, I believe. I believe the truth of what God says. And I believe that I need to respond in the way that God calls me to respond. Paul says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, being Mother's Day, again, I would say that moms everywhere, they know, you know what repentance is, don't you? Right? It's when you call your kids out on their behavior or their attitude or their language, and uh, you, you can tell when they're truly repentant, right? I mean, they may say they're sorry, but you can tell oftentimes when they're not, they're not really sorry. They're just sorry they got caught. Or they're sorry that it makes them look bad. Or they're sorry you don't like it. Or they're, they're sorry that it costs them. They're sorry how it makes them or you feel. But that's not real repentance, is it? 
Mom, what is real, real repentance? Real repentance is when you not only, you don't just say you're sorry, you, you show that you're sorry by making change. Well, what's the change that God calls us to? To treat him like God and to acknowledge that we've not treated him like God. To honor his son as Lord and to submit to him as Lord and to trust in him as our Savior. He wants us to acknowledge that we have fallen short and to recognize that Jesus has come to save us from our sin. God wants us to acknowledge, to recognize that the only way that we can be right with him is not by declaring ourselves right before him, but by clinging to Jesus alone for righteousness, by putting our trust in him. The Bible tells us, or sorry, Paul tells us here in our Bible passage today that God calls on us to repent. Now, you ought to notice the goodness of God in this, that he calls us. There's an open invitation. There's a call to you today. I've just got done saying that the Bible shows us we've not treated God like God. And yet, even still, God calls to you to, to turn and to trust in him. There's an invitation for you to acknowledge your need of him. But there's also a seriousness here. Because the passage tells us the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because, and then Paul tells us something about the future, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. See that in verse 31? He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who's the man he's appointed as judge? It's Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Remember, Easter, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus, is the assurance from God that judgment day is coming. So notice what we've seen so far. Paul has told us truths about God. God is great. God is good. God is holy. He's shown us truths about ourselves. Truth about ourselves, we've not, we've not treated God like God. And that we're called to repent. Why? Well, because of this truth about the future. And the truth that Paul shows us about the future is that judgment day is coming. The day of judgment is coming. Notice it is, an, it is a day that's coming. It's God has fixed a day. It's on God's calendar. He doesn't tell us what that day will be, but we can be assured of this. Today, we're one day closer. It's not a matter of if it will happen. It's a matter of when it will happen. Notice also that Jesus is going to be the judge and that Jesus is going to judge in righteousness. He says, verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now in our courtrooms, in, in our world, in our country, there's, there's uh, crafty lawyers that can find legal loopholes to get their clients out of trouble. There's maybe backroom deals and plea bargains that are, are made. Um, there's sometimes people feel like justice is served, and there's lots of times, though, that people feel that justice is not served, whether the, the verdict is guilty or innocent. Of course, uh, police do the best that they can to, to present the, the facts for a prosecuting attorneys who present the facts in the court, and there's, uh, there's uh, uh, lawyers that try to defend, and sometimes there's trials that are had, and we wonder what actually was the truth. But in the courtroom of heaven, none of these will be an issue. Because the judge, will, he will need no presentation from any lawyers. He knows all the facts. In fact, he knows the truth of, of everything that happens. 
The book of Revelation tells us about this. I just want to turn there with you for a moment. Revelation 20. Uh, the Apostle John was given a preview of this coming judgment day. He looks ahead to that day in Revelation 20 in verse 12. This is what he says. He says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now this is telling us something about the afterlife. On this day in the afterlife, there will be the resurrection of the dead. The righteous and the unrighteous, the believer and the unbeliever. I'm not going to get into the details of all the timeline that's, that's uh, beyond our study today, but there's coming a day when there'll be a resurrection and everyone will stand before the Lord. He says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Now the books represent God's perfect knowledge of everything you've ever said, done, or thought. The books is, is representative of God's perfect knowledge of everything about you and everything you've ever done. It says, and the books were opened. Then it says, another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, the book of life, we, as we read in Revelation, are, is a, a book containing the names of those whose sins have been washed by the blood of Jesus. They are described as overcomers in Revelation because they are people who are faithful to Jesus. They love the Lord and they live for the Lord. And um, their, their, their being washed is not because they've achieved a level of righteousness. No, because they have trusted Jesus for that righteousness. And they've looked away from themselves and put their trust in him. So there's books that are a record of everything we've done. There's also a book of life containing the names of of all those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 13, Revelation 20, it says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Whose name is not in the book of life? It's those who haven't obeyed the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, the gospel is what you've heard today from Paul the Apostle in Acts 17. Repent. It's what you've heard from Jesus. The good news that there is an opportunity now to repent, to turn to him, to believe on him, to follow him, to submit yourself to him. On this judgment day, loved one, on this judgment day, there will be a separation of many, of many souls, body and soul from God. And we see in scripture that this is, that this is eternal, this is permanent. You say, how do I avoid a fate like that? How do I avoid an outcome on judgment day like that? Again, it's by trusting in Jesus. Listen to what the Lord said. John 3 and verse 18. Whoever believes in him, that's Christ. Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus says this in John 5 and 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passes from death to life. You see, there's two groups of people on that day, isn't there? There's two groups of people. There's those who are not condemned. And it's not because they're better than anyone, but it's because they've looked to Jesus. 
and have submitted themselves to him. And there are those who are condemned, Jesus says, because they've not believed on him. It's, like, it's sort of like the, the Titanic. The Titanic, 1912, that tragic night in 1912 on its maiden voyage crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the Titanic hit an iceberg and very quickly sunk. On that night, there were two groups of people. There was the 706 people who survived and the 1,517 people who perished. Two groups of people, survivors and those who perished, those who were victims. Likewise, in the end, there will be two groups of people, those who are forgiven and those who are condemned. My question is, in which group are you? Loved one, we've seen some important things today in Scripture that we need to know this side of judgment. We've seen that God is good, and there's an open invitation for you to see his goodness and receive the gift of salvation. We've also seen that God is great. He is not to be trifled with, and God is holy. And out of his holiness, he will judge in the end through Christ. We've seen some truths about God. We've seen some truths about ourselves. We've not treated God like God, and we're called to repent. We've seen some truths, a truth about the future, right? The judgment day is coming. And on that day, in judgment day, those who do not obey the gospel, who do not have Christ, will be separated from God forever. My appeal to you today is to fly to Jesus. Because when you do, you not only have the surety of salvation now, a relationship with God now in this life, but also the great peace of knowing that when judgment day comes, you really ultimately have nothing to fear. Because on that day, uh, you, will, you will realize what the Bible assures, that there's, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. See, judgment day for the, believer, for, judgment day for the unbeliever results in separation from God. But for the believer, it's vastly different. Paul says in Romans 2 that on that day, he will render to each one according to his works. It says to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. That's what Paul says is happening. The gift of eternal life for those believers who are faithful to the Lord, who trust in him. He doesn't mean that our works somehow save us, but rather as the books are open, the the, the, the evidence on that day and, and will be what God has done in our lives. Evidence that we are saved. Evidence that our faith is real. It'll be a demonstration of God's saving work in our lives. Remember, the Bible says that God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And when the books are open, the record in our lives will be, we're forgiven sinners. And there will be evidence displayed to the glory of God that indeed our faith is real. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, he says this, Do not pronounce judgment. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of heart. Now that sounds scary, isn't it? There's a judgment coming in which the purposes of my heart, my true intentions will be made known. But then he says this, Once that's done on judgment day for the believer, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, that's not what we might expect to find there, right? I mean, when the true intentions of my heart are made known, you might expect condemnation because, well, sometimes, oftentimes, 
almost all the times. I got mixed motives, just like probably you do. But the reality is, is that in that day for the believer, we need not fear because in that day, it will be a matter of rewards. You see, God will reward us. There will be varying degrees of rewards for faithfulness to Christ. Some will receive very few rewards. Some will receive great rewards. But the reality is, is that when you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There will be no jealousy in heaven over who's got what reward. But we are looking forward to a day when we will stand before the Lord. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our aim to please him. The key question for you today, loved one, though, is are you ready for that day? God is great. God is holy. God is good. We're called to honor him. We have not honored him. And having not honored him, the call on us is to repent. And we repent by turning away from our sinful way to Jesus. Have you turned to Jesus? That's my closing question for you today is, is what is your response to what you're hearing today? You know, in our, our scripture text, in Acts 17, we find at the end of the, this, this section that there were mixed responses, just as there may be mixed responses today with us. Um, some were dismissive of Paul's gospel. Notice verse 32, it says, Now when they heard about... Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, right? That's what some do. I mean, some hear this message today and are frankly offended. They probably shut it off already. Um, some will hear this and, and think it's laughable. About Judgment Day. Sounds crazy talk to some. I remember seeing a bumper sticker one time that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. I get the humor in that, but it's not funny. Because Jesus is coming. And so we need to be um, serious about this. But the reality is that some people are just going to dismiss. We just, just it sounds like crazy nonsense. It's, uh, some are going to dismiss the gospel. What about you? Are you dismissive of the gospel? Some are, will deliberate the gospel. Verse, verse 32, it also said, well, well, some mocked. It says, verse 32, but others said, we will hear you again about this. In other words, these are people who are saying, I hear you and I, I got to think about this. And maybe that's you today. You're, you're considering these things. You, you've been, maybe you've listened to me preach for a while and, and during COVID-19, maybe you've been tuning in week to week. I'm so glad you've been doing that. And you're contemplating the things that we're teaching. I'm grateful for that. And I just want to encourage you in that. But just my one challenge would be, don't let it be endless deliberation. You must come to a decision because judgment day is coming. And so you need this Jesus. So don't, don't stand off too long deliberating these things. I'm so glad you're thinking. But you need to come to a decision. And of course, some, some believe. And that's what the passage says. It says in verse 34, but some men joined and believed. Among them were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damarius and others with them. You see, there's believers who, who joined with Paul in faith in Christ and on mission for him. Perhaps that you, that's you. Which of these people are you? Are you, are you dismissive of these things? Are you deliberating these things? Or are you believing in Jesus? I urge you to fly to Jesus today because judgment day is coming. More sure than death and taxes is the day that will come when you will stand before Jesus. I want to leave with you a, an illustration that I, I found in a little book I was reading. Some reflections from a pastor of old, a, 
a, um, a 19th century pastor named C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. He actually pastored a large church in the city of London in, in the UK. And uh, he pastored through a couple of epidemics. So you would probably relate to some of what we're facing today. But he wrote one time a reflection on the reality of oncoming judgment. And I wanted to read to you what he, what he wrote. He likened it to a ship that's crossing the ocean. And the people on the deck of the ship can be doing all kinds of things. But it doesn't affect the fact that the ship is crossing the ocean. He says, The ship holds on her course and makes for the desired port, whether they on board sit, lie, or walk, eat, or sleep. He says, Thus time is at all times, bearing us onward to the land where, where time shall be no more. There is never a pause in our progress toward eternity, whether we trifle or are in earnest. Even while we read these lines, the great ship is still speeding onward at the same rapid and unvarying rate. We shall soon see the shore of eternity, far sooner than we think. It becomes us to be ready for the landing and for the weighty business which will then engage us, namely, judgment at the hands of Christ. You see, just as you can be on a, a cruise liner swimming or drinking cocktails or dancing or looking at the sights or throwing up over the railing. You can be doing all kinds of things on that ship, all kinds of activity, but the ship continues toward the port. And that's exactly what's happening to us right now. Every day that passes, the, the ship of our lives is making its way toward eternity, toward the end. When the end comes, as sure as I'm standing here and as sure as you are there, we will stand before the Lord and he will be our judge. Be sure to be ready. Be sure to be ready for that day. Oh, Father, I pray that you would grant grace for repentance and faith in Jesus, that we be ready for that day that's coming when we stand before you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making a way, for giving us the surety that when we trust in you, there's no condemnation and we've passed from death to life and there's no judgment that will come upon us. I thank you for that truth. And I pray, Lord, that many within the sound of my voice would hear this glad welcome from you and turn to you and find the peace, the peace that comes with your salvation. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high praise to
great and shy.